Father, here we are. Now we come to open up the scripture and I pray that as we do that you would help us. Father, we need you. We need to know that which is true. We need your spirit to work in us in such a way that enables us to live it. Father, I pray that this word would be alive. It would sink deep within us. So that we might live in such a way that brings you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to 1 Peter in chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter in chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm going to take up verse 7 this week because we dealt with verses 1 through 6 already. And I would be a fool to try it twice. So, verse 7 is foolish enough. Uh, but uh, we came to this passage a couple of weeks ago and, and made the astute observation that it's about, it's about marriage, verses 1 through 6, again, about wives being submissive to husbands. Uh, verse 7, about husbands uh, loving their wives. And this comes in a context where Peter is talking about relationships, relationships to where there's one who is authority, one who submits to that authority. He begins by talking about relationships between civil government and citizens, where citizens are to submit to the civil government. Uh, he speaks of slaves and masters, you and I would refer to as employees and employers, uh, saying that this ma- the slave should submit to the master, the employee submit to the employer. And you remember that in this context... Peter even applies this in situations where the one in authority is foolish or ignorant, as he puts it, or even unjust. And the example that he gives us, of course, is Jesus. That it was our Lord Jesus who submitted himself because he was called by his Father to do so, and because he trusted his Father, the Scripture says, the one who judges justly. And that he submitted himself to foolish and ignorant and unjust authorities because he himself was trusting uh, his father. And then Peter goes on now to take up this relationship between husbands and wives. And thus we have wives submitting husbands, husbands being uh, in this uh, place of authority. And you remember a couple of weeks ago when we laid this out, if you were here, when we laid this out, we said that this relationship between husbands and wives is, 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 is founded in creation. It was during the time of the creation of Adam and Eve, where God said a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. And wherein, even as you follow through the creation account, we see the headship of Adam and Eve to be submissive to him. We also see that because of their sin, that this relationship then was cursed, it was perverted. 
And then we see it's redeemed by Jesus. So much so that when we come to the New Testament, we see what the Apostle Paul calls the, the mystery that had surrounded marriage before the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the mystery, as you read it in the responsive reading from Ephesians 5, is the, the relationship between husbands and wives, marriage itself, is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his people, Christ and his church. And so from the very beginning, God had intended that marriage would model the relationship that he has with us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus you see, any attempt to redefine marriage or any attempt to take the role of submission and headship out of marriage not only harms marriage, but it really perverts the gospel. It's really an attack on the gospel because, you see, marriage is to reflect the truth of the gospel, that Christ loves us and that we love him. And thus, wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Now, as we begin today, let me just make some pastoral comments. There isn't a man here who is a husband that won't feel like a failure at the end of this. That isn't my intention, nor Peter's intention. Peter understands what it's like to be a husband. He was one. You remember in the Gospels, there's an account of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Now, the only way to get a mother-in-law... And so Peter was married. And so, so he would understand as he writes to husbands about loving your wife as Christ loves the church. And the intent, you see, isn't to make men, most especially me, quite frankly, feel like a failure. I once read that the job of the preacher is to convict the proud and sweeten the burdens of the saints. It's a difficult task. Because it's the same words, but it depends on the heart in which it falls. And so if you find yourself as a husband and you hear these words and it's convicting to you, confess your sin to God, you may need to go to your wife. And confess to her. But don't just stay there languishing in all of that. Get up. Be ready now to live out this truth of how you're to live. You see, because the word of God is amazing. It's alive. It's powerful. The author of Hebrews says it's, it's like a two-edged sword that's deep. And it goes as deep as it possibly can. But you see, in its depth, yes, it does reveal our sin, but it also, in its very life, brings life with it. And so, the scripture says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, men, we hear this about what it's like to love our wives. This is to spring forth in us, ultimately, faith in God that will enable us to do that. And the great thing about knowing Jesus is that we know the very one who has loved us in the way that we are to love. And so we need to draw upon him. We need to go to him and ask him to help us. One of the great things about praying through Christ is to know that there is one who empathizes with us, knowing that there's one who sympathizes with us, knowing there's one who knows our weakness in every way, yet without sin. See, when I go to you, you may empathize with me, but you've sinned too. You know, we, we sort of help each other, but not that much. Mostly we say, I know how you feel. I know what that's like. I don't know how to change it either, but... But we go to Jesus, you see. He's the very one who's done all this without sin. And if we're to love the way that he's loved us, then who better to go to? And so we have him, and so we need to do that. So, so pray. Wives, as you hear this, 
particularly from this verse 7 about how your husbands are to love you. You, if I could give you a bit of a pastoral admonition, aren't allowed to say anything to your husband about this at all, unless it's, honey, you love me just like Jesus loves the church. This message isn't for you to take home and beat your husband over the head with it. I'll do that myself just fine this morning. Thank you very much. You don't need to do that. I wish in these... This, these are what, this is what I call a retreat passage. I'd rather have the women, you know, for a day and the men for a day. And never the twain shall meet. But, but it's here, you can read. So you know what I would say to the women and you know what I would say to the men because God says it to both of us. But, but, but when men hear a sermon on how their wives are to submit, they aren't to go home and tell their wives they should submit. They had already heard that and they just need to keep quiet. And wives, you need to keep quiet as well. But I also know this. As I mentioned the last time, that marriage is a delight but can also be a great difficulty. And I know that there are women who have been hurt by unloving husbands. Peter knew that when he wrote this. I know this as I preach this. And I know the difficulty that you may feel as a woman. You may even be sitting beside a husband who has hurt you deeply. And I would urge you to pray for him. And to submit to him, as Peter would say. And to love him. Even in the midst of this and to forgive him and to help him. With all that uh, being said, I trust that at the end of any messages on how wives are to submit to husbands and husbands are to love their wives, that wives understand how difficult the call is for her husband and husbands understand how difficult the call is for his their wives. And rather than pointing fingers, they simply pray for each other. Because this life to which we've been called isn't natural. This, this, this passage of scripture is as counter-cultural these days as any passage of scripture we could ever find. One's forcing this kind of behavior, this kind of thinking, this kind of life, but us. And so everything else is shooting at you. Those of you who are single, especially this morning, the men who are single, listen to this, making notes in your own mind, this is the man I'm to be. This is the man that God is calling me to be. So that when you may leg up on the rest of us, many of us didn't know this stuff when we got married. And many of us suffered in our early marriage a great deal more than I think we would have had to had this been a real part of our lives. So understand it. If you're sitting there and you're a guy and you're not married yet, just to, to know the privilege of this kind of insight, that this is the man God's calling you to be and Pray about that and aim for it and develop the kind of disciplines and habits now so that you can be this man when you marry. All right. Now, what Peter's speaking of here is this relationship between husbands and wives wherein the husband has, has a measure of authority in the context of their relationship. And I say that for two reasons. One is that husbands are never called to submit to their wives. Wives are always called to submit to husbands in every passage about husbands and wives. And so we have this setup of one being submissive, the other being the head. Not only that, but this word, uh, but, but what is the, the word that's used of husbands is this word head. You can find it in the Ephesians 5 passage we looked at. You can find it in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. You can find it in Colossians and chapter 3 as Paul talks about husbands and wives. 
And its meaning, I think, is, is best understood by this little verse in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. It's a verse about Jesus. The apostle writes, And he, that's God, the Father, and he put all things under his feet, that his is Jesus, so we would read it, and the Father put all things under Jesus' feet, and came, gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And when the word head is used there in Ephesians chapter 1 of Jesus, it means he's the one who has authority over the church. In fact, he has authority over all things for the sake of the church. He's the head, that's what it means. And so Jesus has absolute authority in this case, but head means, refers to one who has authority. Now, the authority of a husband isn't just like the authority of Jesus, because the authority of a husband is not absolute. Only God has absolute authority. Because when we think of authority, we think of one who has the right and power and responsibility to influence and direct the affairs of another. That's the person in authority. When you're on the phone and you're not getting what you want from that particular person, you want to say, who's really in authority? When you say that, what you're asking is, who's the person who has the right, and the power, and the responsibility to direct this thing? To get the people to do what you know I want them to do, which really means I want to be an authority in this situation, which is what happens. But, but that's, what, what, that's the sense of authority. A person who has the right, power, responsibility to direct the affairs of others. And Peter, Paul, both saying to the husband, you have this authority. You have the right power and responsibility in the context of your marriage to direct its affairs. But to really understand this notion of authority, you need to understand this. Excuse me, I'm just a little warm. And, you know how that gets... Um, I'm not Benny Hinn. Nobody fell over. I'm okay. Now, the... Um, when we think of authority, we have to understand that the nature of authority is defined by, informed by, the nature of the relationship. Let me say that again. You've got to think real hard for about three minutes here. The nature of the authority is defined by, informed by, the nature of the relationship. For instance, the relationship between a citizen and the civil government is different than the relationship between a parent and a child. The, the civil government has authority in things of, of civil matters. The parent has the, has the authority over the life of the child in that family situation. But they're different. For instance, the, the, and we, can even, we can even say the church has authority over people in the sphere of spiritual matters. And uh, an employer has authority over an employee in, in the sphere of, of, of work matters. But we wouldn't expect our employer to wield the same kind of authority that our mom does. Right? See, your mom wields a lot of authority when you're as a kid. They can, they can tell you what time to go to bed, they can tell you what to wear, they can tell you which fork to use. Kids never will, but they'll tell you. But they have that kind of authority, when to go to bed, when to get up, what school to go to. They have great authority over even minute kinds of details. You wouldn't expect your employer to exercise that same kind of authority. You wouldn't expect the civil government to, 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 to exercise that same kind of authority in your life either. So it's defined by the nature of the authority. And, 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 the, and the, the, the power to get someone to act is different. The state, the civil government, has, has 
the power, the right and responsibility to wield the sword, that is, to, to take military actions. Your employer doesn't. Okay? The church doesn't. And so there's difference in how the authority expresses itself. And that's very important to know. Because the, the authority expressed in the relationship of husband and wife is the authority that, that comes in the context of a union between two equal people before God. Peter calls them heirs together of the grace of life. So it's different than an employee-employer situation. It's different than uh, even in the context of a of, uh, because an employer-employee situation is one uh, where the relationship, the authority is based on performance, whereas in this it's based on love and mutual interest. You see. It's different than the relationship between the civil government and the citizen, because there's no use of force in this. No use of physical force. Whereas the civil government has the right authority, if you will, to use physical force. So the relationship between husband and wife is different. The authority expressed different. In fact, if there's any place where Jesus turned a, a concept on its ear, it's in this whole area of authority and leadership. Turn to Matthew in chapter 20. Matthew in chapter 20. Verse 20, this is a situation where uh, the mom of James and John comes to Jesus uh, to make a request for them, rather gutless boys, for them, that when Jesus comes into his glory, that they'd be able to rule with him, sit on his right and his left. And Jesus gives some remarks about that. The other disciples hear that. They get a little bit put out by James and John. So Jesus pulls them together in verse 25 and says this. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, listen, I want to make a comparison here. The Gentiles who have authority, the great ones, the big ones, the ones with great authority, they express their authority by lording it over them, that is, by ruling them with an iron fist, by being the, the sovereign one, if you will. Verse 26, Jesus says, It shall not be so among you. That is, it's going to be different. The way that you exercise authority as believers is going to be different than the way that the Gentiles ex exercise authority. He said, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the authority that the husband has is to have the rights and the power and the responsibility to serve his wife. That's his authority. As you normally, when we think about getting more authority, we go, cool, there are more people who will serve me. But Jesus says, no, when I give you more authority, what that means is now your rights have increased, your power has increased, your responsibility has increased. Go and give yourself for others. Nobody thinks like that but Jesus and us if we're following him. Note how Jesus was the head. Turn again to Ephesians and chapter 5 and verse 25. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, husbands are not the savior of their wives. So we do not spiritually sanctify or save them. But there's a principle here. The comparison that the apostle is making to uh, the way Christ loved and the way we love. He gave himself for our well-being, for his bride's well-being. And now he says we are to give ourselves for our bride's well-being as well. Verse, as well. Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. He's saying, listen, I want you to give yourself for the nourishing and cherishing of your wife. That's how you love her. That's your calling. And he says, I'm going to give you the authority to do that. I'm going to make you the head so that you have all the rights you need, all the power you need, and all the responsibility that you need in order to love her like this. So don't be bashful. You have the right to give yourself for her. Don't, don't feel that weak because I'll give you the power to love her like this. And don't feel it a burden. It's just the responsibility that I'm going to give you. It's yours. You don't have to apologize for it. Just jump in there and give your life for her. That she might be nourished and cherished. That's how you're to love her. Now Peter gives us some insights into this way of loving as well. Notice 1 Peter 3 verse 7 he says Likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He says I want you to live uh, your lives with your wives in an understanding way. You want to know how to love them rightly where well, you need to have knowledge. Literally, this simply means live with your wives with knowledge. And you're thinking, I'm thinking, knowledge of what exactly? You know, what's going to help me be able to love my wife? What do I need to know? What do I need to understand in order for me to really love my wife? I have to be honest with you. I find the most difficult aspect of my Christian life is being a loving husband and father. And I have it probably better than 99.9% of you in the context of my own marriage because of who my wife is and who my children happen to be. They make it easy, but it's still a very difficult thing. And so I come to this question, what really do I need to know? What, what understanding do I need to bring and have in order to love as I'm supposed to love? What would, what would be that? And, and I think these categories come to my mind. Number one, I, I need to know something about God's purpose for marriage. Not only that, I need to know my wife. I need to be in school all the time. I need to be paying attention all the time to her. What's her goals, desires? What's her heart? Even trying to figure out emotions, which for a guy like me is not an easy thing to figure out. But I need to be in school all the time. I'll never forget when I was at a, I was a kid playing basketball. In junior high, we, I attended a, one of these camp things. 
and um, the, the, the person who was speaking, sort of a local celebrity basketball guy, was speaking, and he was, he was mentioning this fact. He said, your coach knows you so well. He watches you all the time, and he knows you so well. And the reason he does that is because he needs to know who the best passer among you is so that during a crucial time, if there's an out-of-bounds play, he'll have you making that pass, and that's how well a coach knows you. And I begin to think, I need to know my wife that well. I need to learn about her. And how did my coach learn about us? He watched us all the time, as painful as that was. He used to call me the village idiot. That was his little love name for me. But, uh... But, uh, but we need to, husbands need to watch and learn and grow and be engaged in learning about their wives as a key ingredient of life so that we can love them. And I made a list, I'm just going to run through a list with you about what I think husbands ought to know. This can't be an exhaustive list because it's mine and I'm... I left things out, and I don't know that I can need 14 points, and I don't know how I'll combine them. But this list comes to my mind first and foremost. Uh, number one, we need to know as husbands that we are the head of our wives, and thus this authority that is given to us is so that we can love them as Christ loved us. In fact, we need to know that this is what it means to be the head of our wives. They were called by God, to lovingly lead them by means of joyful, humble self-sacrifice. That we need to lovingly lead our wives by means of joyful, because that's how Jesus went to the cross. It was before the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He did it joyfully, amazingly so. Humbly, our Lord Jesus, the scripture says of him that he was equal to God. He was in the very form of God, and yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. A thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being obedient to death, even death upon a cross. That was our Lord Jesus, you see. So joyfully, humbly, self-sacrifice. Jesus gave himself. This is the very vocation of a husband's life. Secondly, that we need to know that this authority does not mean that we are better than our wives or that she is unimportant, that all that's needed in the context of a marriage is the guy. Because you remember in the creation account that when God finally looked upon Adam, his first comment was, it's not good that he's alone. He needs a helper. There's nobody like him. He needs to be completed. He needs someone to come alongside him and, and be with him. And thus God created Eve so she could be that helper. If it was good for us to be alone, if we were all that was necessary, that's all that there would be is a bunch of guys. Earth would smell like a locker room. But no, he says, I want, you, you need a helper. In fact, Peter goes on to say in this passage that, that we live together as heirs of the grace of life. Meaning, not only is she not unimportant, but she's crucial, in fact, so crucial that she's of equal worth and equal value to God. In fact, she shares God in the context of this marriage, and thus she has a relationship with God herself. She prays, she learns God to her, God loves her, she's accepted by Him, she walks with Him. She doesn't need to go through her husband to get to God. 
She goes through Christ to get to God. In fact, that's so true because in these early verses of First Peter 3, we're talking about a woman who's married, a Christian woman who's married to an unbelieving man. And she is to live an exemplary life of the power of God. She doesn't have to go through her husband to get to God. She goes through Christ to get to God just like the husband does. And so it's not that there's better or more important, but they live together as heirs of the grace of life. Uh, Thirdly, a husband needs to know, I need to know in the relationship with my wife that my authority is not absolute, but I'm utterly and completely accountable to God. I'm accountable to Christ and how I love my wife. Now, I don't know exactly what happens after you die and you meet the Lord, you know, there's all kinds of little accounts about in the scripture about judgments and so forth and so on. And I don't know exactly what questions are going to be asked. Now, I know the answer is Jesus. You know, so I'm going on my way up. I'm writing Jesus. So I remember. You know, I have it in front of me all the time. But I don't know exactly all the questions that are being asked. But I have a sense in which, at least moment by moment now, and perhaps even then, if I'm accountable to anything, the question will be, how did you love your wife? Because that's what I'm called to do is, did you joyfully, humbly, self-sacrificially love your wife? That's the authority I gave you. I gave you the authority to go out and love her like that, did you? I'm accountable to Christ. Then I need to also know that she is, in fact, the weaker vessel. He doesn't describe exactly what he means by weaker vessel. Someone suggested that what he means by that is that women are naturally, biologically weaker physically than men. And that may well be what he intends here. Because on average, that's certainly true. And thus, a husband needs to know that I am not to, I don't have authority to um, lead my wife by force. There's absolutely, positively no reason, excuse, for any man being forceful physically with his wife. And I know the statistics and I know the problem and I know all of that about physical abuse, husbands to wives. And I I share this with you, gentlemen, out of love and compassion. If this is your problem, you need to seek help. Because that isn't what God means by being the head of your household, by being the head of your wife, that you would physically be forceful in that relationship. That's not the authority that you have. And I can tell you this, that if it's an issue for you, you won't be able to, to, to solve it on your own. You're going to need the help of others. So call us, call somebody. But it may well mean, and I think the context suggests this as well, that Peter's saying to husbands, don't take advantage of your position as head. Don't rule over your wife selfishly, harshly, so that your own selfish desires will be fulfilled. Because God has placed your wife, God has placed our wives in a relatively vulnerable position, made her to be submissive to this husband. That makes her weaker in the context of that relationship. God sets it up like that. To where, husband, you're the one as head and authority, and so so she's in a vulnerable position and she trusts you and, and gives herself to you. So don't take advantage of that. Understand. Bend over backwards so that you're never taking advantage of your position in, in authority in that context. That makes sense. She doesn't exist to fulfill your self-desires. And you can't make her just because you're the head and she's to be submissive. That's not the authority 
that you have as husband. Then we need to know that this does not mean that the husband gives up leading. That is, husband in giving himself for his wife simply doesn't say, okay honey, whatever you want is fine. Because he's still accountable to God to make sure that whatever happens in the context of his marriage and his family is fine. And thus, if she wants to sin, he can't go along with that. He can't, if you will, permit that in the context of the marriage. Difficulty for husbands, you see, at this point, is that we're accountable to make certain that the direction of the family and the direction of our marriage is a godly one. And so a husband has to continually learn and be disciplined to distinguish between what is morally right and wrong, what is glorifying to God and what is not, and what are simply his preferences. Because God has not given husbands the authority just to run their house to, to make them happy. Just, oh, I like it this way. So this is the way it's going to be. But no, he has to give himself in love to his wife so that she's growing in her relationship with the Lord, so that she's fulfilled, and so that the family is moving along in a godly way. Nor does it mean that he gets to have what he wants. Uh, it's always a burden on a husband in helping and ultimately making decisions to make certain that he isn't just simply fulfilling his own natural desires, his own selfish desires, but in fact is loving his wife in the midst of all this. It doesn't mean that he gets to decide everything. Only a foolish man would do that. Remember, it was God who said it's not good for a man to be alone. Let me bring somebody along to help him. And so a man needs to avail himself of all that help. But what a man is responsible for, has authority over in the context of the marriage, is to make sure that the pattern of decision-making is a godly one. And that the, ultimately the decisions that are made are godly decisions. A husband needs to know that his wife needs Christ. But she needs to have a vibrant and growing faith and a vibrant and growing relationship with Christ. And thus he needs to do all that he possibly can to encourage that. Then, husbands need to know that because God has called their wives to be submissive, that it could be a very frightening place. Because God is calling her to give herself to her husband and to trust him. And thus she gives herself to her husband physically. She gives herself to her husband emotionally. She gives herself to her husband financially. She gives, to her, gives herself to her husband socially, meaning that if he ruins his reputation, her reputation too. And here's the position she's in. And so I think Peter says, now hold that as you would hold a weaker vessel, as you would hold a very expensive, precious, I can't say vase, because vase, there you go. Hold it like that. Be very careful how you live, men. How you live, husbands. Because understand that your wives have put themselves in you by God in a very vulnerable situation. And so, gentlemen, she needs to know that she is utterly secure in your physical relationship with her, that you share that with no one else. No one on a page, no one on a video, no one in a movie, no one on a computer screen, no one in your mind. Because you see, to do that would be to abuse that which God has given you, and she has given you herself. Now again, I, I'm not naive at all, trust me. Sometimes pastors, say, people say about pastors, well, they don't know the real, the real world, trust me. 
we know the real world uh, better than anybody, I think. And I understand the issues of pornography. I understand the problems that men have with all that. But I'm telling you, young guys, especially college guys, please, by the mercies of God, stay away. Throw your computer out the window. Go to the library. Use that one. Make sure you're hooked up with other people on accountability kinds of things. If you don't have an accountability partner, call me. I'll pay for the software. We'll get it taken care of so that you're protected in this way because I know the temptations. If you get started on this now, it'll ruin your marriage. Because you see, if we're to love our wives in an understanding way, we need to understand the vulnerability which they are and the security that they need in this physical relationship. They not only need that, but they need the security in the emotional relationship. So guard yourself, gentlemen, who are married in relationships with other women around the office and so forth, and even in church and other places, because, because your wife needs to know that she shares you with no one else in various and certain areas physically and emotionally. She needs to know that she's the only one who shares that with you. Again, young guys, not married guys, don't have sex before marriage. Because when you get married, you want to be able to say to your wife, you're the only person I've ever shared this with. Now, I know some of you already blown that, so do the confession thing, do the repentance thing, start all over, all that kind of stuff. But if you haven't, please refrain because one of the greatest gifts you can give your wife to be is to be able to say, you're the only person I've ever shared this with. Do you know the security that that will give her in the context of your marriage is so great? She needs that. You need to know that as a husband. We need to know these things. We need to know that we're responsible as provider. That doesn't mean the husband has to make all the money. But, he, but she has to know that he's aware of all these financial things. And if there's a need, he, she has to know that he's going to be the one to jump in there and try to meet that need. That it doesn't fall on her shoulders. But he takes that responsibility. He needs to know that you care for her by the way that you speak to her. The way you speak about her. But above all, our wives need our personal holiness. There's nothing that a wife needs more than to know that her husband loves Christ and is following after him. So men, you need to do everything you possibly can to foster your own relationship with Christ and to demonstrate that relationship that you have with Christ to your wife. That she knows that you have that. She needs to know that you want to be in worship. You need to take that lead. Whatever that means in the context of your marriage. You need to be the one that's excited about showing up at church. You need to be the one that's excited about being in Bible study. You're the one who needs to be excited about going to the men's retreat. Because that will actually increase the security that your wife has in your relationship. Because she knows that you're getting spiritual input, input from God. She needs to know that your love for Christ is genuine and real and that you really know him. So when you're talking, she knows that that's informed by the word of God through the spirit of God. It isn't just you talking. She needs to know that. She needs to respect your walk with Christ. You need to demonstrate that with her. You need to have Christian friends who are men. That will help her. Because if you don't have any Christian friends who are men, and you have, Christi- you have friends, uh, male friends who aren't Christians, she's going to know that the information you get about life is coming from non-believing men. And she won't trust that. And she'll be wondering, what's warping my husband's mind? That's why when our men's retreat comes along, I'll make a special appeal to the wives. 
It's coming up soon, October. This isn't a guilt thing. It's just a good illustration. But if the guilt works, fine. <laughs> and that is that, that I'll tell the wives, be submissive. Let your husbands go. Encourage them to go. They need this. This will help your marriage. If they can hang out with a bunch of Christian guys for about 20 hours, that will help you. When he comes back, he'll still be, you know, still leave his socks on the floor, probably because men don't talk about that at retreats. Uh, nothing really practical, but you'll know that he's hooked up with a Christian man, and that will help you trust that he's walking with God. How important is this? Peter says, if you don't love your wives like this, your prayers will be hindered. That's amazing. I always think that I'm supposed to pray so that my life will be more holy. And yet now we also see the other side of that is a holy life leads to better prayer. And I'll talk in a couple in the next week about why that's true. But just tuck that away. How devastating that is. Think of it, gentlemen. With all the responsibility and all the authority that we have as husbands, if we're not using that authority rightly and loving our wives as we ought, then there's a sense in which our relationship with God is interrupted and that our prayers will be hindered. And I don't know if that means that we just won't pray or we won't have any confidence when we pray or that God won't answer us when we pray. But think about how devastating that is to have needs in the context of your family and you're not loving your wife as you ought, so your prayers are hindered. Where do you go? What help do you get? It's crucial, you see. Can we carry this out now? fortunate for us, both as wives who are to be submissive to their husbands and husbands who are to love their wives, we have Jesus. In fact, this relationship, as we we have said, mirrors this relationship between Christ and the church, Christ and his bride. And you remember that on the night that that Jesus was betrayed, the scripture tells us that he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said this, is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And on this particular day, for men and women, husbands and wives, As we come to this table, we can think about Jesus. Because if I'm a wife, I'm thinking, how is it that I'll be able to submit to my husband? And I would urge that wife to look at Jesus. Because he humbled himself and submitted himself even to these civil authorities. And he was blessed. And as a husband, to be able to say, how is it I'm going to be able to love my wife in this joyful, humble, self-sacrificial way? And to husbands, I just simply say, remember Jesus. Think about him. He did it. And he's the very one who fills you. He's the very one who lives in you. Go to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even now as we look upon this table, this bread and juice, I pray that you would set it apart in a way that would be meaningful to us to enable us to see Jesus. Father's bread and juice will always stay bread and juice, but you have told us to take it and to set it apart and to use it. As we touch it, as we smell it, as we taste it, 
that it will remind us of Jesus and that we'll fellowship with him even here for he's spiritually present among us and I pray the Father for those who are lamenting their sin in this area whether it be in the area of husbands not rightly loving their wives or in the area of pornography or in the area of being unfaithful Pray, Father, that you bring upon us the spirit of honest and real repentance. In the midst of that, Father, though, too, I pray you'd enable all those in that condition to look upon Jesus and to know that because of his life, death, resurrection, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is righteousness. So I pray, Father, that you would convict, lead to repentance, and bring cleansing. And for those, Father, who struggle, as we all do in the context of really, really loving, I pray, Father, that you would enable us to look at Jesus, the author and finishing finisher of our faith, that he brought it about, that he'll bring it to completion, and between the beginning and end, he will transform. And I pray that we would know our destiny is to be conformed to his image, so I pray, Father, that you would work that in us even now. That our heart's desire would be to be like Jesus, and to love like him. And that you would work that in the hearts of every husband and even every one of us. So Father, use these moments, use this meal in a way that transforms us and brings you glory. This I pray in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, thank you. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit in a way would cause us to walk like Jesus and people really would see us and marvel at you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, college students, lunch in just a few minutes. Make your way back to room three. Wednesday night, supper, please come. Please receive this as God's benediction. Our response will be to sing the doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore, and together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him our creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host, Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.